Well, good morning, Harrison Hills Baptist Church. How are you doing this morning? Very good to be with you again. Yes, Jennifer and I were here about a year ago, just about this same time, and uh, it was a privilege to stand in a pulpit in the place of Adam to give him a breather, which is what we're doing for the next two weeks as well, because every pastor does need to take a rest from the rigors of studying and preparing to unfold the Word of God every Sunday morning of a year. I will tell you, on behalf of your pastor, that is heavy, heavy work. Uh, It's very heavy for a pastor to confront God in the Bible or to be confronted by God in the Bible and to have his sin laid bare before his own eyes and to reconcile his own heart before he dare stand in a pulpit and proclaim to you that you need to follow after this God that's in the Bible. And so Adam needs a break from that, and I am so blessed to be able to come and give you a breather. And I am going to challenge you from the pulpit today as well, and hopefully you will be encouraged and strengthened and ready to get back in here, I believe, at the very end of this month, the last Sunday of this month. So with that, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the last two paragraphs of chapter 1 in John's gospel, starting in verse 35. And as you turn there, I want to set the table today by asking you uh, the most important question you could ever be asked. And here it is. What is man's greatest desire? What do you think is at the core of every man and woman that's ever breathed air on God's earth? What do we want? More more personally, what is it that you most long for? What do you ache for? What do you most extremely hope and desire for in life? You know, as I've asked myself that question over the years, and yes, even this last week as I prepared for this, I have come to find that really what we need is kind of a spiritual detox. And we need to cleanse ourselves of the desires of this world because our first inclination is to respond to that question with a bunch of stuff that isn't going to satisfy us. We need to... uh, cleanse ourselves of the desire for material things. And some material things like food and clothing are very important, but that's not what we ultimately most desire. Sure, we want good health. Some of us are in a health crisis in this moment or have family members that are in health crises. And yes, it is right to long for cures for that and for healing for that, but even that long-term won't satisfy. Maybe we want relationships restored, or maybe we want relationships to begin, but even those will fall short of meeting our most urgent longing and most deep desire. I believe, as I just put some thoughts down this week, that all of humanity wants several things centering around one main theme, and that is all of humanity wants peace. Now, peace with whom or with what, that's a big question. But we all want peace. We all want hope. We all want security. We all want provision. We all want meaning and significance. We all want, you ready for this? We all want life, abundant life, right? Are we getting closer now to the desire that we have? We want an abundant life as opposed to death. There's other questions that are at our core. Why do I exist? 
What is my eternity? Or how about this? How can I may be made whole? Because I really feel broken. I really feel inadequate. I really feel incomplete. Something is wrong. Well, the answer to these questions and the, the deepest longing that every one of us in this room has is very simple. You ready for this? It is God. <laughs> no, you came to church today and you totally expected to hear that, didn't you? Okay, but I'm not shy to say that what you long for the most, what you ache for the most, what you need the most is God. And today we're going to talk about what that looks like. And I'm going to show you how God can be had if you don't already have him. So this answer of God is the answer to the question that we most long for. That This is God's design that that would be our answer. We are made in his image. We are made in his likeness. We were created to want him. We were created to know him. We were created to be with him. But we got separated from him because of something called sin. And so anything short of God that we look to to satisfy our longings, I'm here to tell you this morning, it will ultimately, if not immediately, disappoint you and dissatisfy you. And if you find any satisfaction in anything other than God this morning to, to, to secure your deepest longings, you will quickly, quickly be dissatisfied and you will be looking for the next thing. Well, let's cut to the chase and let's look to the one solution to man's greatest desires. It's my desire this morning that we will see from Scripture that what every person wants is God and that God has provided himself to meet that very desire. So John chapter 1, I want to cut this sermon into two sections, okay? We're going to look first at verses 35 through 42, and then we'll take a break and, and talk through as I, after I read that, and then we'll look next at chapters, uh, verse 43 through, through actually 49. We will stop short of 51 today. So read with me now in John 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means the teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. 
Well, I want to show you this morning that right here in this first section of text in our message today, we are going to see the very beginnings, the very birth, the very inauguration of evangelism. It has not happened in this form to this point. Sure, the Old Testament has pointed to a Messiah, to a Lamb of God that would come, but here we are in the Gospel of John and we see the first ever evangelistic encounter when someone points someone else to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We have John the Baptist and his disciples. Now, real quick, a disciple is a student who belongs to a teacher. John the Baptist is a faithful teacher, and a faithful teacher teaches for the benefit of his disciples, not for his own benefit, but for their benefit to grow and to improve and to become what they are fully commanded to be by God. And in John's teaching, throughout the time that he spent with these disciples of his, he prepared them for the Christ. Nothing else and nothing more. Jesus the Christ And in this moment, John the Baptist sees the Christ coming. And he says these great words, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus walk by, acknowledges him as not just some person, not just some rabbi, but the Lamb of God. Just consider that title that is now given to Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this morning that these are, you ready? These are the greatest words that were ever uttered by a human voice. There's nothing greater to be said than, behold the Lamb of God. And we have that recorded here this morning in the Gospel of John. He proclaims Jesus to be the ultimate manifestation of an Old Testament promise. And if you're familiar with this, I want you to rehearse it with me and go over this with me again. If you are not familiar with this, I want you to lean in and understand what it means to call Jesus the Lamb of God this morning. For you see, sinful Israel in the Old Testament was to take an unblemished lamb, a a lamb without flaw, a lamb that was also firstborn from its mother, and they were to kill this lamb. God established this sacrificial system. They were to take a perfect lamb. They were to shed its blood and kill it for the remission and the forgiveness of their sins. It was symbolic. It was God showing them that life must be given to gain eternal life. They were to kill it. And God ordained it to be faithfully observed in practice generation after generation after generation until the days of Jesus Christ. There were pointers throughout the entire Old Testament that promised that there would be a person who would come to serve as the Lamb of God. I want to take you to one that's just vivid and must be read this morning as we talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's found in Isaiah chapter 53. I would invite you to turn over there with me. We're going to look at just a few short verses. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6. the prophet is speaking of this lamb that Jesus has told his disciples to behold. There Isaiah writes, but he, this he, when you hear the pronoun he, we're talking about this lamb of God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with us, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First of all, I'm going to pause there for a moment. We are starting to get to the greatest urge that we have lurking within our hearts and souls. And that is to be right with God. And this verse, these verses so far have pointed to our iniquity, our sin, our separate, what has separated us from God. And he goes on to say in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And here it is. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears silent, so he opened not his mouth. We've got a person in Isaiah 53 that is likened to a lamb that is needed by people who have sinned against God. Well, this coincides with John's first acknowledgement of the Lamb of God. I'm back in John chapter 1 now. Look at verse 29. We've been in 35 and following. Look up at verse 29 where John the Baptist, the very first time that he sees Jesus coming towards him, he said, behold the Lamb of God. So there's our phrase that we've already looked at, but look at what he says after that. Who takes away the sins of the world. We are dealing with the Lamb of God that is identified in Isaiah 53 as the one who will take away our iniquities in a substitutionary manner upon a cross. How does he take away the sins of the world? Jesus Christ was perfect and without sin. He was a firstborn of God. And he shed his own blood even though he didn't sin. He shed his blood for our sins and he died on a cross so that we might have forgiveness with God. He takes away our sins by his substitutionary death on the cross in our place. God, 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here's the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. He's unblemished, he's firstborn, he's without flaw, and he's without sin, and yet he dies to pay the price that we deserved. So Jesus is the ultimate and final Lamb of God that Isaiah is pointing to as well as all the other writers in the Old Testament. And John's teaching is now fulfilled as he points his disciples to this very Lamb, Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the response of these two disciples. The text says very simply, the two disciples followed Jesus right there in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. I just want to picture for a moment what this scene must have looked like. These two disciples have their eyes fixed on their teacher, their rabbi, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, and they take their gaze from John to Jesus, and they never look back to John in the same way. They've got a new rabbi. We'll see that term here used in a moment. 
We, we don't see, by the way, in this text, we don't see these disciples questioning. We don't see them studying. We don't see them weighing the cost. We don't see them looking back. They have turned their gaze from John to Jesus once and for all. And we see here instant devotion, instant change in loyalty, and instant following. Right here in this moment, when these two men look upon Jesus like this, we see salvation happen in their lives. This is a documentation of these two disciples transitioning from lostness to foundness in believing in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Right here, we see truly the identification of the very first two Christians in the history of Christianity. Let me stop for a moment. I want to make an application to us about what's transpired here so far. There is no other response to the discovery of Jesus Christ that is appropriate to take. When you are encountering Jesus Christ in scripture, in preaching like this moment, in your own time of study with the Bible, in a conversation with a friend at work or a family member, when you are confronted with the truth of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your response must be to follow him. That's the calling this morning. And the question is, have you seen the Lamb of God? I want to tell you this morning that you have glimpsed of him in this sermon just now. Have you seen the Lamb of God? Where is he, you ask? He's in Scripture. He's in this pulpit as Adam preaches week in and week out. He's in the Sunday school class at 945 that Harold and Brent are so faithful to teach through. The Lamb of God is proclaimed at this church. The Lamb of God is proclaimed amongst your family, perhaps, or maybe a co-worker at work. And you are to respond as these two disciples responded to this utterance of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God has given you and me right here a vivid description of how we are to respond to this great news. Have you done that today? Have you chosen chosen to follow Jesus? Well, let's continue on in the text now, starting in verse 38, because now Jesus addresses these two disciples of John's. Jesus says to them, what are you seeking? He turns, he sees them following, and he says to them, what are you? Are you seeking? Well, let me take you back to the introduction. This here is humanity's ultimate question, isn't it? You're dissatisfied. These disciples are not satisfied. They're seeking something else. And Jesus asks them, what is that something else? And I'm going to tell you this morning, the question was not for Jesus. Jesus was not wondering what these guys were seeking. The question was for them. It was a prompt to them in their hearts to make sure that their motives were right as they came after this Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You know, God knows this about us. And I do think in a sermon like this today, I think God has asked you, not that I am God, but on behalf of God as his spokesman, God is asking, what are you seeking? Because you're not satisfied. You're not at peace. You have longings that aren't being met. What are you seeking? And Jesus had the ultimate answer to this question. The ultimate treasure that they sought was Jesus Christ himself. 
So he continues to draw them in to become disciples of his by saying, what are you seeking? Are you looking for the right thing? Because if you are, I am it and you can have me. And so they answer, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? (laughs) It's kind of a funny response, isn't it? Were they shy and bashful at the moment? Oh my goodness, we didn't expect a question. Uh, Where are you staying? No, it's nothing like that. They understand that rabbi means teacher. They are seeking the ultimate teacher. They've had a good teacher in John the Baptist, but they thirst, they hunger, they long for ultimate instruction in the ultimate truth of the ultimate way to be right with God. And so they say, where are you staying Because where you are, there we want to be. Where are you staying and can we be with you there? These two don't want to part from Jesus. They want to reside with him and abide with him where he is they are wanting to be. Well, Jesus responds to that with, come and you will see. (laughs) Very simple interactions here. Come and you will see. And so the disciples' response to this is, they came and they saw and they stayed. And let me just make you a a declaration here this morning. When you look at a passage like this, I can assure you from the substantiation of the scriptures, Jesus Christ never puts off a sincere seeker. If you truly are seeking Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, He will not put you off. He will not stiff arm you. He will not delay you. Seeking souls always find a receptive Christ. Genuinely seeking souls will always find a receptive Christ. He says it himself in John 6, right after this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and here it is. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we've got a Lord Jesus Christ, we've got a Lamb of God that is saying to you and to me this morning, what are you seeking? And he's saying to you and me this morning, come and see. It's an invitation. For every one of us, many of us have accepted that invitation. And we can take a passage like this and revel in the memories of the moment when we accepted this invitation. And we really need to re-up and we need to continue to follow and we need to continue to stay and we need to continue to see the Savior Jesus Christ. But some of us in this room have not yet taken Jesus up on this offer to come and see and stay with me and follow me. Oh, I've prayed this week as I've prepared for this, that you would come and see that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Well, look what happens next. It's almost like a chain reaction. We've got John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. We've got Jesus, what are you seeking? Come and see. Well, now we get to be informed as to who these two disciples are that are involved in these evangelistic encounters. The two disciples are, number one, Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, as the text tells us. So this is Peter's brother, Andrew. 
And then we have this mysterious, the other disciple, right? Uh, one of the two heard Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, there, there's Andrew and then there's this other disciple. Well, who is the other disciple? If you continue to read the book of John, you'll learn that the other disciple is the author of this book, the apostle John. And he is, in, he is very humble in the way he writes. <laughs> he never refers to himself directly, but along the way you start getting hints that the, the other disciple is the Apostle John. And so these two disciples together of John the Baptist are now becoming disciples of Jesus, and they are what I would call the second generation of evangelists. The first generation is John the Baptist and Jesus, if you will, and the second generation, the second iteration of evangelists is that of a Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and the apostle John who wrote this gospel for us. What does Andrew do? Andrew first, look at the text, Andrew first finds his brother Simon. He's got urgent business. He's got a discovery that is urgent, that must be shared. It can't be kept to himself. He's got to find his brother Simon, and oh, does he have news for him. Look at what he says. We have found the Messiah. Now be careful when you come to the Bible and read phrases like that. We, we do not read that in a flat, mundane kind of way. We need to read that as we have found the Messiah. Because that is exactly how it was proclaimed in this day and age, 2,000 years ago. Once again, just like behold the Lamb of God, these are the greatest words ever uttered by the human tongue. It's a tie for first. Behold the Lamb of God, and we have found the Messiah. They basically mean the same things, and these are the ultimate things any human being could ever communicate to another human being. You know, more often than not, I think we read this text wrongly, and I think it's because we're so familiar with it. We read it quickly, we read it with a high degree of familiarity, and we've grown accustomed to it. But we cannot lose the astonishment of such a truth just because it's familiar. Pastor Adam, you study week in and week out. You counsel and you shepherd this congregation about the Messiah. But I want you to stop this morning and I want you to refresh and be astonished once again with the utterance of we have found the Messiah. I have done that this week. As I have encountered this text. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't read that so blasé. Read it with the unction that it merits. We have found the Messiah. Well, what does that mean? I'm, there might be some in here that, doesn't need, that don't know what this means. And I want to show you from the Bible what this means. So Andrew was about to come out of his skin as he told his brother this ultimate news. Why? Because for generations, Israelites, and when I say generations, I mean millennia, Israelites have been praying for this very truth to be revealed. You see, Messiah, let's define that term for a moment. Messiah means anointed one or 
promised one. And in this case, I think the the right definition is the promised one. We have found the promised one. Peter, Simon at the time, we have found the one who was promised. We have been looking for this for generations upon generations. And we are the current and present generation that gets to discover that the promised one has arrived. The promise has come true. So here and now, these disciples are the very ones whom God chose to reveal himself as Christ in the flesh. And finding the Messiah, finding the Christ that was promised to the patriarchs, this is the most significant discovery in the history of the Jewish people at that time. Tragically, quick aside, not all Jewish people even today believe that this is the Messiah. But the Jews named Andrew and John and Peter, and in a minute we'll see Nathaniel and John the Baptist, they believe that the promised one has arrived. And I want you to hear this morning that this is true for us too. We have found the Messiah. He is here in our scriptures. And he is whom we preach about day in and day out in all circumstances of life. The Messiah has come incarnate in the flesh. And we have beheld him as full of grace and truth. So... Andrew goes and utters these words to his brother, Simon. And then I love this very, very simple verse. Verse 42. (laughs) He brought him to Jesus. Such a simple sentence. Such a brief and short sentence. But such an invaluable and eternal impact. He brought him to the Messiah that he had found beautiful sentence we don't need a lot of words do we Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus it's the greatest thing he could have ever done for his brother there's nothing greater than this act toward his brother and as his brother approaches Jesus speaks to him so you are Simon the son of John today you shall be called Cephas and the apostle John tells us which means Peter I'm not going to break down what all is going on there, but let me suffice it to say for this moment before we move on that here Jesus Christ is demonstrating his lordship over Simon who has come to him in faith. Jesus in his lordship has said, I'm going to name you Peter. And boy, is there a lot of meaning in that word Peter and does Peter play big in the rest of the gospel of John? I encourage you to read it perhaps even this afternoon. But here is where Peter gets a new name because he is a new man because he has now satisfied the greatest desire that his soul ever had. He has found the Messiah, God with us. So, with that, uh, let's move now to uh, Jesus's, I'm sorry, I got out of order in my notes here. This is the ultimate work that any any human being could ever give to another, introducing others to Jesus the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Let me ask you for a moment to think about this. What is the most important thing that you think you could contribute to humanity right now on this earth? 
feeding those in famine. Sign me up for that. That's pretty important, right? Uh, developing a cure for cancer. We, we need this, don't we? Uh, how about this? How about bringing an end to the genocide called abortion? Something that we will recognize next week and we're preparing for this week as a church. These are utterly important, very urgent matters. But even those things pale in comparison to bringing someone to Jesus the Christ. In fact, we want to bring people out of famine. We want to cure people of cancer. And we want babies to live and not be aborted. Why? So that they can live and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that is the ultimate end of all of these important things that we do on earth. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the most urgent matter of business that you and I have is to usher people into the presence of the Lamb of God. There is no greater work than this. All right, let's continue on. Let's now look at John 1, starting in verse 43. Let me read through uh, 49 now. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What an encounter that must have been. Here Jesus now is on offense. He's going to Galilee and he encounters one called Philip. And Jesus says to Philip two words. Follow me. Which is what Jesus has said to every person that's ever believed in him in one way or another. Follow me. And boy... Philip rightly understands, and we understand clearly, that he followed Jesus. This is the same thing as Jesus saying to Andrew and the other disciple, who is John, come and you will see. And this is how Jesus has called you, and this is how he's called me. So Jesus says, follow me, and I want you to know that there is a... a, A calling that every person has to respond to to become a Christian, to become a believer in Jesus Christ. And it is this, follow me and obey my commands and my Father's commands. I want to take you now to an example of the antithesis of that. I want to contrast what Philip did in Jesus' command to follow him with another character from the New Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. 
And I'm going to give you an example here this morning of the exact wrong response. Philip has responded rightly in following him, but we have an example of someone who does the opposite. We've got a man who comes to Jesus in Matthew 19, 16, and he says this, Teacher, what, deed must, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, let me pause for a moment, and I want to ask you, do, do you rightly understand his question? Did you hear it? What is his greatest longing? He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's his desire. I want eternal life. Nothing else. And Jesus says in verse 17, if you would enter life, then keep the commandments. And you can see the commandments that Jesus cites there. Love God, love neighbor, honor father and mother, right? Jesus said, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. And what does the young man say in response to this? Well, in verse 20, he says, hey, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? <laughs> you hear it again? There's this longing in his soul that is not satisfied. What do I still lack? In other words, I am broken. I am incomplete. I am inadequate. I am dissatisfied. Lord, what do I lack? Because I've done all those. I've checked those boxes. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, and here it is, follow me. Just like he said to Philip. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So he needed to do a spiritual detox and rend out of his soul the desires of the flesh and the entrapments of this world so that he could desire Christ, but he could not bring himself to do that. He weighed the cost, and unlike Andrew and Peter and Philip, he turned away conflicted. In fact, it says he turned away sorrowful, dissatisfied, by the way. Because what he's turning away from could satisfy him and what he's turned to he knows will not satisfy long term. He thought his greatest desires could be met by the things of the world, not the creator of the world. And what we have here is an eternal tragedy in scripture. And I urge you this morning, choose the way of Philip and of Andrew, and of that other disciple, John, and in a moment of Nathaniel, follow Jesus Christ, and he will satisfy your greatest longings and your most urgent desires. Well, Philip followed him, and let's see what Philip does. Philip, in verse 45, found Nathaniel. In Matthew, he's also known as Bartholomew. He found Nathanael, and he said to him, listen to this title for Jesus. This is a long one. It's almost a paragraph. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That's quite a title, isn't it? Behold the Lamb of God, 
We have found the Messiah, and now we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about. This is what he says to Nathanael. This is not your everyday title, but Jesus is not your everyday person, is he? He's a person with a capital P. This title tells us something majorly significant about Jesus Christ. And it tells us this, that he is the subject of the entire Old Testament. I want to introduce you to that concept this morning. We've got an Old Testament and a New Testament. These books are in one book called the Bible. And they are all about the same subject. God creating man, man sinning against God and falling out of fellowship, God redeeming man. That is the text of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. This is how man's greatest desires are satisfied. Reconciliation with God. And Jesus is the one that the Old Testament has been pointing toward and now is the one that the New Testament is all about. Even Jesus didn't shy away from this title about himself. Even he used this title and explained himself in this title. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he's confronted by Pharisees who do not agree with his claim to be God. And he says to them in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, make a note of that passage, verse 27, we've got two disciples that are dejected because their Jesus is dead. And they don't yet realize that the promise was for a resurrection on the third day that has happened. And Jesus comes alongside them. And as they explain to him their dejection because they thought their greatest need was met, but now no, it wasn't. It says, Luke writes, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and all of the prophets wrote. He is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. I wish time permitted for us to spend the afternoon combing through the Old Testament, looking at all these promises that Moses and the prophets wrote about. But you know what? You have a Bible and you have a life to live. And I urge you for the rest of your life, comb through the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament and see this thread of Jesus, the Messiah, weaving its way from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to Revelation 22. So, let's progress on and come to a conclusion. Look at what Jesus says to Nathanael upon Nathanael coming to him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, I'm not going to break down what's going on when Nathanael says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Love to talk that through with you, but we do need to get out of here at some point. But Jesus, in talking to him, says... Here is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's response is, how do you know me? 
Again, here's this human desire, a desire to be known by the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote. How do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I knew you. And Nathaniel responds immediately, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Well, let me quickly explain to you what many theologians think about this passage. I have not come up with this on my own because it is rather confusing to see it at first glance. But the fig tree is a very significant place in Old Testament history. Uh, if you read fig tree uh, study, if you do a fig tree study in the Old Testament, you will find that it is oftentimes a sacred place of prayer for rabbis. And uh, it's thought that perhaps Nathaniel could be a young rabbinic student who has placed himself under a fig tree and he's praying under this tree. And what might a young rabbinic student pray for under this fig tree? Well, he probably, his ultimate prayer is, Lord, Father, God, would you send the Messiah that has been promised? Well, in this moment when Nathaniel is confronted by Philip with, we have found him, he, it could be, okay, not saying this is what the, uh, what the scriptures are saying precisely, but one way for us to understand this is that Nathaniel, in preparing for the coming of Messiah, was praying, Lord, please send him. And when Jesus says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Nathaniel, for him to utter such a response is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, one could conclude that he is seeking the Messiah as he prays under this fig tree. One good hypothesis. It's probably the best one. I don't know of one that I would, I would claim other than that. And so in this moment, in Nathaniel's mind, the only person who could discern him being under a fig tree would be the God in the flesh, the omniscient one, Jesus Christ. And so Nathaniel concludes that Jesus must be the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And yes, dare I say, even the Lamb of God. So right here, in this right precise moment, we see Nathaniel's conversion to Christ as he beholds the one that he has sought. You know, I'll, I'll challenge you also to spend some time this afternoon working back through this passage. There are ten titles in this text that are attributed to Jesus, and each one of them is worthy of study. And, and, and give five to ten minutes to each one of these, and you'll find an amazing revelation about Jesus Christ and who he is in the Old Testament this afternoon. Well, let me conclude with this. I want to say to you this morning, Harrison Hills Baptist Church, we have found the Messiah. We have sung about that. We have prayed to this Messiah. We have preached the Messiah. We have discovered the revelation of the Messiah to those 2,000 years ago. John the Baptist, Andrew, Philip, all of their evangelistic ambition has been repeated a billion times over from this moment in text all the way to the present day. This is how evangelism has worked for the last 2,000 years. We have found the Messiah and we go and tell people and bring people to Jesus the Christ. If you are here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, 
This is how you came to know him. And I would urge you today to stop for a moment and consider that time when someone came to you and said, we have found him, come and see. Pause right now and thank God for that moment in your life. And then as you thank God for that, now turn it and say, Father, it's the greatest thing I could ever tell someone else. Who would you have for me to go and tell? Who would you have for me to come and bring to Jesus our Christ? If you are here today and you have not followed Jesus Christ, this is the invitation that is before you. You have a longing. I know you do because I'm human just like you. You have cares and concerns and ultimately you're wondering why in the world do I exist? What in the world is my eternity? Is there something more to life than this? And I'm here to tell you today, there is. There is a reconciled life of eternity with God. And you get that reconciled life and that eternal life with God through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. We have found him. Come and see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inspiring John to record in this passage what he has recorded. Father, we thank you that this recording is not fiction, but it is history. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And Father, in your kindness, you have revealed him to us this day. Father, we grant that you would, we ask that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. Jesus, we thank you for coming and dying and rising. We thank you for fulfilling all that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Father, as we leave here today, would you cause us to consider our souls and where we are in relationship to you? And would you show to us, maybe for the first time, or would you renew in our hearts the conviction that Jesus Christ is the only solution to what ails us and to what we ache and long for? And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.